die erste Elegie. Wer, wenn ich schrie, hörte mich denn aus der Engelordnungen und Gesetz selbst, es nehme einer mich plötzlich ans Herz, ich verginge von seinem stärkeren Dasein. Denn das Schöne ist nichts als das schwächliche Anfang, den wir noch gerade ertragen und wir bewundern es so, weil es gelassen verschmäht, uns zu zerstören. Ein jeder Engel ist schrecklich. Who, if I cried out, would hear me among the angels' hierarchies? And even if one of them pressed me suddenly against his heart, I would be consumed in that overwhelming existence. For beauty is nothing but the beginning of terror, which we still are just able to endure, and we are so awed because it serenely disdains to annihilate us. Every angel is terrifying. Hey friends, welcome back to the Regeneration Podcasting. You notice we start off a little differently this time. I hope you didn't think, oh, they switched to German. I, I well, Michael, we started with <laughs> Name That Tune sometimes. It could have been a version of German Name That Tune, right? We could have. But but I, I asked these, our, our guests today, two guests. So it's another thing, another uh, out of the ordinary for us. Daniel Polakoff, poet, translator, and... Uh, Rilke scholar, and and my godson, Jonathan Geltner, also author um, of most recently of Absolute Music, which actually has a section on uh, one of our topics today, and uh, translator of Paul Claudel's uh, Five Great Odes for Angelical Press, not too long ago. And uh, welcome to the Regeneration broadcast, gentlemen. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, part of what we're going to talk, not just Rilke today, but Rilke is important in the initial uh, inspiration to talk about this, because I, I mentioned to Mike weeks ago, we should do a show on Wings of Desire. I hadn't watched it till yesterday. You know, I was familiar with it, had seen parts. And, and here's the thing. Now, uh, this uh, this is the 35th anniversary of I think the release of the film in the United States, though it was released in, in 1987 in, in Germany, I think, or, or elsewhere. And I know this because I saw it when it was released in the theater. In fact, you couldn't find theaters that had this. This was only in the, the art house circuit, which those, those of you people raised on Netflix have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> but uh, I saw it in 1988 in the summer at uh, the Detroit Film Theater, which is a really beautiful little theater at, that housed the, the Detroit Institute of Arts. <clears throat> and this is right after, so in December of 87 is when I left the music business because it just was gross. And so I was kind of in, in this deep period of spiritual seeking and striving. And I realized when I look back that I was always wearing black and gray, which is <laughs> I had my my German existentialist vibes happening. <laughs> and uh, I had I had think I, I was a vegetarian 
I didn't drink coffee anymore. I was just really renouncing everything. And then I went to see this film. How old were you, Michael? I was 25, maybe 26. I think I just turned 26. And I went to see this film with my girlfriend. And there's the scene in the film, we'll talk about it later, where uh, the first thing Damiel the angel does when he incarnates is gets a cup of coffee. Because he, he Peter Falk talking to him earlier. He, I just wish you could taste this. It's so good when you get coffee and you and you smoke at the same time. It's fantastic. <laughs> that's the first thing I do when I went home. I'm tore, tearing the house up looking for coffee. <laughs> and I haven't stopped since. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so but besides that, it was profoundly moving. I mean, I had never seen anything like this film. And as uh, when I became an English professor many, many years later, uh, I was doing a course called Religion and Film. And this is one of the films we would do. And my one of my colleagues, a philosopher, said, I got to come see this. I said, why? Said, because if you see that movie and it doesn't change your life, you're probably dead. <laughs> and so he came and he had seen it, but he had a similar experience. And it was nice to see that that translate to some of my students mm-hmm. I, I the one of the one times I, I showed the film in class afterwards I was getting ready to leave it was late afternoon class and I'm going through the parking lot and I saw this young woman and she had just watched the film with me and she was just in a kind of state I said Cameron you okay she said I just realized I have I have a lot of things to think about <laughs> yeah so I, so I would ask you gentlemen what was your initial experience of this film? Daniel? Yeah. Well, it was a very, very important film um, for me. It, uh, some kind of biographical parallel. Um, I was in graduate school um, in comparative literature at, at Cornell. But I had gone through a period of crisis of profound alienation from the university and um, my dissertation wasn't happening. And um, I had um, recently been divorced. Um, And I saw it um, around the same time that I was uh, met my current wife, Monica, who is German. And um, it was part of a whole period of, for me, of really kind of um, trying to find a new footing in life. Um, One of the reasons for the alienation from the university was because I felt the letter was, the spirit was, uh, the spirit of the letter was, was pretty dead in the academic circles there. It's the height of deconstruction and um, and everything was um, either French theory or politics and um, such a profound distance between the um, community of critics and the living word. And um, I was just trying to start somehow from ground zero again and find my way through a broken relationship and it spoke very deeply to that 
um, quest to try and find meaning from a very modern place of, I mean, I think you mentioned, you know, wearing black and gray, Michael, existential, existentialism. <laughs> There's an existential character about the film and I think a lot of Vendor's stuff and certainly Rilke as an early 20th century poet fits into that um, milieu of trying to extract from existence as it's presented to us some kind of uh, uh, of meaning, some kind of identity in the face of a world that can seem very empty. And certainly for, for myself too, I saw it, uh, I don't know if, uh, I think I saw it alone uh, the first time I saw it, but then I saw it several times um, not long thereafter with, uh, with Monica. And it became a, a little bit of a, you know, signature of the, of, you know, what we were kind of trying to look for in each, each, each other or relationship, um, you know, love, spirit, um, some um, meaning. And I actually met Monica, um, she's a eurythmist, uh, um, the movement art in the Waldorf School at a, um, um, eurythmy program that she was selling tickets for and we got to ticket talking so I was the first one to show up and um, I was translating Rilke at that time and it turned out that she had done her diploma on the sonnets to Orpheus hmm. so um, we struck up a conversation about Rilke and so um, which is formative in our all of our relationships. So Rilke and Wenders kind of went together from the beginning um, for me. And they, and I think they, they both have this um, point of departure from an early modern existentialist um, search for meaning in the soul um, in which the relationship of man and woman, one way or another, I think in very different ways is, is very formative. And where organized religion per se is 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 not really um, very much on the scene at mm -hmm. all. Um, I don't think it's very present in Wings of Desire. Um, there aren't scenes in churches or, <laughs> right. you know. Um, so yeah, it was a it was very very um, important part of that formative phase in my life and career, which also began, you know, was when I was first discovering Wilka at the same time. Interesting. And John? I have to ask you guys um, if, uh, what, what the direct connection is between vendors and Rilke. Uh, I, believe, I believe there is one for that film, right? But uh, Peter Handke, the, the great Austrian author, is the the man who wrote the the um, uh, Lied vom Kindsein, the the poem that is recited throughout the uh, the song of childhood um, about childhood uh, that's recited throughout the the film. But um, my to my that question to answer that question quickly is uh, I think uh, if I'm correct, Wenders when he was working on the film was reading Rilke every okay. night. He said he wanted contact with the best of the German language. And he found that in mm -hmm. Rilke. Okay. So he was um, kind of immersed in Rilke 
while yeah, these potential. So is, is that your understanding, Michael? Yeah, in fact, uh, because I own the Criterion Collection ver <laughs> version, which has a nice documentary that's hit some, at the beginning of the film. Of yeah. the documentary he said that's right. he was in okay. he was invoking Rilke intentionally so that's that's great i i'm glad to know that because i so i didn't i didn't <laughs> i don't have the criterion version of the film <laughs> um, <laughs> in the theater um so i i saw it for the first time in the spring of 2003 which is when i was either just i don't remember precisely when either just turned or about to turn 21 um so uh slightly younger than you guys but there's some interesting parallels to your stories of it um and there's no doubt that that that's not a coincidence so um at that time i was an undergraduate at the university of cincinnati and i was living by myself in this city um in the middle of the city there uh and i had um i was i was painfully coming out of a disastrous ending of, of a the, the first very serious relationship uh, of my life. Uh, I had been engaged to get married and had called that off and um, was in a great deal of, of heartbreak and confusion um, at that time because of that. And at the same time, um, and partly as a means of, of getting myself through that um, period when I seemed to have lost sight of everything that I thought I was committed to. Um, I was throwing myself with every possible vigor and passion into the study, into my studies as a, as a literature student. Um, and uh, I, I studied a number of languages, mostly Greek and Latin, and French, but but even a few others too, as an undergraduate. And um, so one day, uh, some depressing evening um, in the springtime, I, I went to the Blockbuster video, which you know, which you can remember those that was by my campus, and I was just mindlessly walking around in it, looking for something, um, and I. Uh, I, I hit upon it. I'd never heard of the movie. I had no no idea what was going on with it. Um, and I rented it and took it home and watched it. If any, if by any chance anyone listening might have uh, read my novel, I can. Um, it, it, the 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 film does have a, an important moment in the novel, but I will say my my uh, relationship to it is not quite as intense um, uh, as as the narrator of that novel, um, but. I did I did have a powerful reaction to it. And it so happened that in that same time, that same season, that springtime in Cincinnati, I was, and I don't remember how I first got into this. Um, I was reading Rilke for the first time. And um, somehow at the same time, also uh, Stephen Mitchell. So the only translation I've ever had of Rilke is Stephen Mitchell's translation and he um he was uh, into Zen and uh, is he still living I don't know um yes. I think he is uh, Zen and Taoism he has a he has a really fantastic though quite um idiosyncratic translation of the Tao Te Ching and um I was reading that at the same time as his Rilke translations and somehow I mean, there must be something behind this because 
the same man elected to translate both. But somehow to me, they were they were lining up those two texts, the Duino elegies specifically and the Tao Te Ching. I can't now, you know, I actually have like all these notes scribbled when I was 21 years old in, in my copy of Rilke's Duino elegies. And there's all kinds of references to Taoism in my notes. And I, I just don't understand how I was able to make those connections. But, um, I was actually a much better reader of these elegies, I think, uh, at 21 than I might be now. Um, but uh, anyway, that was in there. And it was, so it was this kind of powerful synchronicity going on there that um, was incredibly formative. And so these poems, if I reread them today, and I have since, of course, reread them at different times, um, very powerfully sort of yoke me back to that that phase of my life but as um which includes wings of desire der himmel über berlin and um when i watched that movie for the first time um i i was studying german i didn't have very good german at the time um but i had it well enough that i could um understand a lot of the the german parts of it um, I had fluent French. So one of the most amazing things about the film is that we get Marion's thoughts in French. She's French, um, but uh, but of course she's in Berlin. So uh, dialogue in the, any, any dialogue or external speech is, um, is in German. So um, the movie goes back and forth between these. Uh, and it's that oscillation between the two languages, one of which was very familiar to me, and one of which was a new, a newer um, encounter for me, was really powerful too. And actually, I think a, a key element to how I experienced the film. Um, it did have subtitles, of course, and I would I'd probably, you know, look at them sometimes. Um, but I tried not to, and and I generally have trouble with subtitles, and I can't really pay very good attention to them or read them quickly enough. And um, yeah, I was just arrested by the language of the film. So the writing that the lead from Kinsein that um, Peter Huntke wrote um, for the the movie was especially powerful to me. Um, but just the very fact that you have these two languages coexisting there. Um, and then, of course, uh, English in the form of Nick Cave singing <laughs> and the, the concert they go to, um, which uh, and I knew who he was. You know, I listened to his music some at that time. Um, uh, uh, maybe we could bring that in later. But um, yeah, the, the linguistic thing going on in the film was was itself a powerful thing for me. And I, I've never really quite figured out why, except that I. Um, well, I think it's beautifully written um, in the novel. The, the narrator uh, goes on about Marianne's uh, um, Liebeserklärung, the, her, her declaration of love uh, to Damiel, uh, the, the incarnated Damiel towards the end of the movie. Um, yeah. uh, I mean, passages like that are just crazy well-written. And also um, the famous ending part where you're getting um, the angel Damiel's uh, thoughts as he's watching Marianne do her trapeze work or her acrobatic work and like just one of the greatest lines in any film I've ever heard ich weiß jetzt was kein Engel weiß you know I know now what no angel knows um as he's looking up but I think that's the last words of the the film well, 
Yeah. And that transposition um, where now he's on, on the earth and she's up below. in the sky, right? Yeah, he's so watching her twirl yeah. on the rope very high up. Yeah. Um, and there's yeah, there's there's moments in the in the, the Duino elegies actually where that inversion is is going on too. Um but yeah, it's just it was incredibly, incredibly well written. I mean, it's just the the movie is just poetry from start to finish. And um yeah, you don't you don't get that very often. Regardless of what but but it's interesting to me that all of us talk about being in a kind of state of desolation or confusion when we first encountered this yeah. film. And it there's something about it, even though it's in many ways a I mean, the aesthetic of the the film so it's, it's it's black and white until the incarnation of the the angel until he he plummets down to to earth and, and becomes a man um and then it's in color i believe right yeah. uh, well, well there's a couple of bits where it switches yeah. right in yeah. the circus right I think it's black and white when it's being viewed through either yeah. Damiel or Cassiel's eyes yeah. and it becomes color when um, it's viewed through more through a human character's eyes. Right. But, but, but once he becomes incarnated, I think yes. it's almost but, yeah. all yes. color. But that first moment where it switches to color, I remember I was, I was kind of stunned in the theater. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was was kind of, that jacket in the shop that's just yeah. like, <laughs> no, no, when she's when she's on the trapeze and, and they're rehearsing. And there's yeah. and she's telling them she can't fly with these chicken wings on, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. Line. And yeah. it just switches. And I remember I'm else like whole the whole theater <laughs> gasped. Yeah. Right. Because plot, I mean, the the cinematography, the black and white cinematography, we you have to mention Henri Alicant, right? Who was the cinematographer for Jean Cocteau. And Beauty and the Beast, which is one of the most beautiful films ever made. And here he was. And in fact, in the documentary, uh, Vendors talks about when the cinema, you know, when that uh, Ali Khan had a, a filter he made that was made from his, his, and he was 80 something at the time. He came out of retirement to do this. He was in his 80s, maybe 85. And he had a filter that he made from his grandmother's stocking, silk stocking, oh that he had used all through his career, that they had to be so careful to put it in front of the camera, they had to tape it because it wouldn't fit on anything, these modern cameras. And you can tell, I mean, just the, the, the beauty of the lighting and of the black and white, it's, you know, you, you can't, it's not something that's easily captured. Right. Yeah, it's it's a gross urban. So one of the most amazing things about this film that I love the most, and I and I think this actually also must have been part of my initial perception of it, is it takes what would many people would ordinarily describe as a kind of not aesthetically appealing urban environment. Um, there's all these shots of the wall and like the U-Bahn is like it's just it, it it's Berlin and and it's like it's some scary. of the some of the glorious parts of Berlin, but also a ton of like less glorious. And it it, it transfigures this city. It, it's a movie very much about Berlin and the fact that it's the Cold War and um, the city is still divided. Um, and of course, it's filmed entirely on the Western side and um, is is hugely significant to the, the themes of the film. Um, you know, angel or incorporeal versus corporeal is divisions and whatnot. But um, 
the but just the aesthetics of it were amazing and i was living in cincinnati and and cincinnati is a place that many people would say is um not very attractive or at least some people do and um not least of them cincinnatians but it's actually this gorgeous beautiful city in these hills but it is sort of run down and ruined in a lot of places you know it's this old beat up american industrial city and um and I, at that time, spent a heck of a lot of my free time wandering around the city, just taking these <laughs> walks all around Cincinnati um, through places that no one would ever normally just like walk for <laughs> leisure. Um, and uh, that being a flaneur. So being a flaneur in a, in a city that has a lot of beauty and charm, but is also... Um, sort of quasi ruined, uh, whether by war in the case of Berlin, or, um, you know, just American post industrial culture um, is uh, that that kind of perspective that you can have on a city is is I think, well captured in the in the film. Um, it, it's, it's got a yeah. Um, yeah, a particular urban aesthetic. And um, I think it's, it's important that you mention because a lot of people when I saw it, when Daniel saw it, this is before the wall fell. Yeah. Right. We saw it. So not only was it filmed, but it was it was only about a year and a half before the wall fell, but it yeah. was before the wall fell. And interesting in that film, and in a similar film, I don't think you guys are familiar with it, uh, Hans uh, Jürgens von Cyberberg's uh, Parseval. It's He filmed the whole opera. And <laughs> both of that was came out in 82, so a few years before for this film but both of them are kind of contending with the nazi past of the german people i mean they're you know it's still haunting them you know which uh, you and it haunted i mean i'm daniel i can both attest to this it, it was something that was just part of my childhood you know the ghost of world war ii yeah mine too more than vietnam which was actually going on when i was a little kid but World War II haunted us. We still had Holocaust survivors in the neighborhood, right? I knew people who had tattoos from from from, from uh, the Holocaust still, and uh, so it was really it was an interesting, uh, you know, attempt at acknowledging the sins of Germany and trying trying to enact a kind of catharsis. I think this is part of what Vendors was doing, right? Yeah. yeah. I think what Jonathan, you were saying about the the city, you know, um, well, I, I think for a moment of uh, William Carlos Williams Patterson, yeah. um, the man is the city. You know, another poet of a of a Patterson is by no means, uh, you know, a, a glorious place. It's also kind of uh, <laughs> run down and so forth. But the the city and its condition is also a metaphor for the human condition mm -hmm. at that point in time, especially um, as Michael was saying, and you know, the aftermath of World War II, when you look at what humanity can um can 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 be. And and um of course the film begins with uh, Damiel, I think he's on the Gedächtniskirche, the, the Church of Memory, which has been ruined in the war, and you see him on the the, the jagged a broken portion of the the um, the church there, which in Gedächtniskirche means the church of memory, 
Um, so the whole film is framed with that initial question about the ruination of, well, of, uh, of religion, of belief, of, um, uh, you know, structure and of humanity. And that's where the angels looking, looking down from. Um, yeah. Point. And, um, and he's in what, what's the official like, um, uh, script name for the the old man who's in the the library um, did they just call him homer in the in the or the archangel of storytelling they call him that too yeah well he's not clear like he's he's just wandering around in the library and he's reading all kinds of different things and and he's um thinking to himself though i guess i mean this is how i interpret it anyway and okay. notice hold it before you go Notice when he's when he's looking at that. There's a book he's looking at a bunch of photographs, right? Yep. He's reading it from the back to the front. Yeah. And it's not written in Hebrew. <laughs> Even though know. one of the people in the library is actually, you can hear his thoughts. You can hear him say the opening lines of Genesis. In yes. Hebrew, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. I can... what, it's the angel of history. <laughs> it's the Benjamin's angel of history. Yeah. I don't know what... Um, but he's th he's he's has this really interesting moment in the film. Um, uh, he, he's an odd character to me in terms of the whole narrative because he drops away, but but he sort of sets a, a kind of tone. Uh, his appearance early in the film and and uh, he's talking about you know we have these incredible compelling stories, these great epics, um, but they're all about war. That they're, they're tied into war somehow mm -hmm. and. And he says, who will sing the epic of peace or something like that? Right. Um, yes. And uh, phenomenal line, phenomenal idea. Yeah. Uh, and it's like he's looking in the library for the materials that this epic might be made from. And he's he's not finding it or anyhow, no one's found it yet there, um, even though the library is full of all kinds of people. And 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 then it's so the whole film sort of stands as an answer to that question. It it's it ends up being well, you want the epic of peace. It's a, the epic story of men and woman coming together at yeah. the end. Um, and that's that's sort of or at least where it starts. It's a wonderful. There's a there's a line that Kierkegaard has uh, in a couple of places, in at least one of which I think is in propria persona and not one of his pseudonyms, where he says that. Um, you know, all the stories end at marriage where they should begin. That's mm -hmm. where they should start, which has always reminded me a little bit of that, um, the line in, in, in Wings of Desire, we, we, where's the epic of peace? We, we have the epics of war, and we need those too, actually, but, but we, where's the one of peace? Um, I, I feel like the epic of marriage is the answer to that, to that desire, that need. <clears throat> well, it's, you know, all of Shakespeare's comedy is all in with the, with the wedding, right? Yeah. And so yeah, is well, the, that's the comedy trip. Yeah, I mean that's what they do, <laughs> and that's fine. It's great. It, the, the the quest to get up to the moment of the marriage, the union uh, of the the male and the female, the the hero and heroine is is great. It is an archetypal essential story. Body and spirit, right? But there's then, you know, another story to be told. Every story ends by implying the next one, and that's that's where that's how this one ends, right? Yeah, this one ends sort yeah. of that way too, maybe, but with a very strong feeling of like, well, it's going to proceed now. Um, instead of great, it's done. We got we got the thing done. Story's over. 
that at least I get at the end there where where Damiel's looking at at Marion and and I get this strong sense of the film has got us up to the moment where now the story can start. This is what had to happen in yes. order for the story to be possible, but now it's really going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure exactly why I get that feeling so strongly from the end. Maybe you guys could speak to it, but I think that's always been my impression. She has that line. Um, now things become serious. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and the, yeah, the whole film is a, is a quest for um, authenticity, for a sense of reality, you know, and, and therefore meaning um, in a, what looks like a pretty meaningless world. And um, that is going to be linked to the question of which, which is dealt with somewhat in the, in the, in the sequel is, you know, yes, now that they are, are together, um yeah are, are in a union um physically and emotionally well what's burst from that you know and what what's the course of that uh unfoldment and what does that what does that bring and um that looks towards you know the the, the future or the the next film um but one one um point i wanted to raise that i think is pretty pretty basic to the film um obviously the the angels are are, are central um but the whole relationship between the transcendent and the mundane um is obviously central to the film and it's um interesting that i think in certain ways i mean to me there are a are two basic um, pivots or, or central motifs in the film. One is the relationship between the, uh, the angelic and the human, the divine and the the human, and the other is the relationship of man and woman. Um, mm-hmm. And I think they're actually handled very differently in the elegies on the one hand and the vendors film on the other. Um, they're closely kin, but in a certain respect, you could say that the, the treatments of those themes is somewhat opposite, in that um, when I'm you know speaking of the elegies in particular, which I think is probably the Rilke work that is is closely most closely related to the to the film. Um, because mm-hmm. it, it, in Rilke, you get um, a sense of the banality of the ordinary um, and the the emptiness of existence that's just the interpreted world, the gedeuteten Welt, you know, the everyday world. Ultimately, the poem moves toward a redemption of that, of seeing the um, you know, the the brilliance and beauty in things themselves once they are poetically named, which is the mission of the poet. And of course, naming and bearing witness is um, pr- profoundly important in the, the Vendors film as well. 
but Rilke starts from this point of uh, of an emptiness um, and of the of the mundane at the same time that um, he's very wary about any any premature transcendence, if if you will, like the human being um, slipping out of their skin and having a relationship to the spiritual world, skipping over embodied reality. And so there's that moment in the elegies where he uh, puts up his, uh, there's a figure of Rilke warding the angel off. And of course, the, the angel, the, the very beginning lines that we, we quoted, every angel is terrible, is the sense of the, the sublime power which can be so destructive of the, of the transcendent, of, of God or the angel. And the human has to be protected from that in Rilke to um, develop its own identity without being crushed or devastated mm -hmm. by the, the divine. Um, whereas in, you know, the vendors, so, so there, there is kind of a movement towards um, both a protection from transcendence, but also a desire um, for it in the real in elegies. Whereas in Wings of Desire, we have this, we begin with the angels, right? The transcendent consciousness of what is eternal, you know, and beyond time. And the, the vector is towards, well, that coming into embodied yeah. being and the, the, the glory of, of, of that. Um, so in a way, they're two sides of the same coin, but they're coming at it from, from different starting points. Mm -hmm, absolutely yeah and, and in a way the 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 embodied becomes the trans yes that's the take home for me anyway that's yes. why i certainly went home that day straight for the coffee right yes. mm -hmm. I, to, and I think it really changed i mean it changed my perspective about everything that that day i realized i was i was living like a like a ghost and they needed to live yeah. an embodied existence yeah the, the character who's essential for that in the film, I think, is a fascinating character. Is the the guy played by Peter Falk? Oh, he's playing himself, Peter Falk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, because he is um, he is the only one who's conscious of and and even able to communicate a little <laughs> with the angels. He he is himself a uh, a former angel, right? I think that's the idea. Yeah. So, and the, the question is if we are not all right, right. but he has this this wonderful, that right. wonderful <laughs> line where he's on the set of whatever um thing he's supposed to be shooting he, he's an actor right. you know playing himself and um and, and by the way i totally believe peter angel peter falk is a is a as an ex-angel <laughs> one of my favorite actors ever but uh he's he's sitting there and he's and he's like drinking his coffee like he's always doing or smoking or, or both uh which he advises doing together and it and admittedly it's awesome um but and he's and he's like i wish you could be here now i, I wish you could be with me now or something like that because he can sense sort of still the presence of the angels when they they hang around and he puts yeah. his hand up right yeah, yeah. yeah. It's such a beautiful moment. And it's an invitation. So it's like in the film, the the direction is from heavenward or from the heavens earthward. And in the elegies, maybe yeah, it's 
more about rising up or, or trying to find the, the the point of encounter the safe responsible mature point of encounter uh, but that direction yeah that moment where he invites the when i first saw it i didn't i didn't i don't think pick up on the idea of like oh well peter fox a, a former angel himself but um i mean it's pretty it's pretty obvious if you think about it he, he just he knows too much but he, but as a character it's just fascinating that he is uh successfully occupying the middle ground there he he, he is the um characterization of that thing that Rilke is striving for in in the yearning for in the elegies um not Damiel who yeah he becomes a human but he's he's like still figuring it out you know he's not really um a pro at it yet it's it's the that odd little Peter Falk character um who, who actually is that most Rilkean combination I guess right and, the and thing Peter is, Falk's his desire to um you know, he's not going to help um he's not going to help Damien rush it along too much right and just a little background for me is the uh uh Jonathan saw it in 2003 in the spring I saw it in the spring of 2023 um namely yesterday but the uh <laughs> the, the the one thing you know you know I'd heard of it but the one thing um that I kind of have in common and you know and I wasn't going through kind of a personal life crisis yesterday that I'm aware of but um <laughs> there, there's a theme you know when we talk about kind of those up and down movements there's a theme that's in culture today when I watched it honestly yesterday I wondered I didn't think it had been done before but I finished the movie and I'm wondering you know hasn't this been done before and I, I kept on searching in myself and what I kept on hearing was um you know, and this goes back to a time where maybe I was in a crisis. It would be, and um, it would be the the idea of becoming fully human. Yeah. So, so one example of that. Now, I'm not putting it on the same aesthetic level, but Stephen Soundheim plays with that theme a lot in songs like, you know, being alive. Somebody pull me up short. Somebody forced me to care. I'm kind of living like a zombie, and becoming alive. So I thought of like the angels becoming human. You know, every young person today is obsessed with zombie movies. And that theme of becoming alive um, is one that, you know, it's another trajectory, a very, you know, to me, kind of a similar story with that. Um, and at that point, when I needed that, when I was feeling low, uh, I could say, yeah, I wanted, um, I wanted to live at maximum vitality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think all these themes kind of weave together. But I also wonder, you know, you guys might know more, had that theme, you know, I just explained how there was a strong resonance in me from the theme of taking on embodiment of an angel wanting to have his heart broken. You know, when I, I noticed too, when I was looking at some of the quotes after watching it yesterday, like the 17 best quotes, right before he takes quote unquote the plunge, you know, there's these lines about to be in her arms for her to be in my arms. Mm -hmm. That didn't make it the line in any, in any website I went to, cause I was trying to find all those words again without going back through. And then also for the, the Rilke scholars here, in the subtitles, which Jonathan struggles with a little bit, you know, we know in when Rilke, he's going to make a distinction, at least in the English translations, the idea of love, you know, protecting the solitude of another. Um, in my work in theology, we're always talk, talking about how the worst is the corruption of the best. You know, the crowd is the corruption of community. Hope is a corruption of, I mean, optimism is a corruption of hope. And when I read Rilke, I, and working with young people, I tend to try to make a distinction 
and having worked over at a monastery between loneliness and solitude, loneliness and solitude. And yet in that kind of penultimate closing scene in the bar outside of the, the Nick Cage concert, you know, she's saying, you make me feel lonely. You know, I wondered if you guys who know more about the German language than I and about Rilke, you know, if you weaved any insights into that. And, but this, you know, there's a movie now with the American one, uh, a man called Otto. I haven't seen it, but I've seen the Norwegian one. And when my kids were watching it, all I can say is like, this is the only story about a man who's living, his wife had died, again, a broken heart, like you said, Daniel. And then this Iranian lady in the original Norwegian movie, um, based on a novel, kind of upsets his life and kind of draws, he's about to, he's trying to kill himself unsuccessfully and draws him back into life. Um, but uh, maybe a little bit about loneliness and solitude. Is that a relevant well, thing in the ending there, of Mike. this movie? Yeah. Before you go yeah. there? Now, you pointed to something we haven't really touched on is when the film starts and we hear the inner monologues of different people, right? They're almost uniformly, you know, about anxiety and, you know, and fear. And it's really, it's, you know, it's, we're, we're in fact, what happens is we, the audience, we actually participate in the point of view of the angels which is one of the beautiful things about it We're, we we have the same omniscience that the angels have about all these other people and we see it through the angels um but they're so sad and uh, and but but even uh, one, of, one of the interesting moments i think one of my favorite moments in the film is the motorcycle accident where yeah first <laughs> begins with, with the 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 guy who's dying says haven't you ever seen anybody croak before and then Damiel comes back and comforts him and you hear this these kind this kind of uh um spontaneous free association about just these images and they're all just extraordinary right like color of the the color of stones and water easter bread and wine i mean all these things that my mother my father my wife my child just it's extraordinary and it goes from from the the sublime to the ridiculous stromboli shows up in there right but it's mm -hmm. it's beautiful and it's the, in a way it's it's a almost a kind of a transition moment in the film because in death in this guy's death, you see the transcendent come into there, which is might be one of the only times until at that point in the film where the inner monologues of people we've heard have have hopefulness to them. You know, and yeah. then it kind of changes. I think the mood of the film changes after that. Yeah, I think that's a a, a key point, a really um, fundamental point, is that yes, there is a um, a call to a awakening to life, but the portal to that is death. You know, they're they're both really dealing with, um, you know, what in a kind of classic religious context would be called initiation. You know, an initiation. You don't just jump out of your skin into the spirit, right? There has to be a, a death of the ego in some way, shape, or form. Um, uh, some kind of death of the ordinary self or consciousness in order to contact with without utter destruction, you know, the 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 transcendent that is always there, right? And um part, you know what when you were saying, Michael, about hearing people's thoughts, 
um, what we're introduced to there is the fact that um, yes, the thoughts are, are sad and full of anxiety and everybody's in their own thought cubicle, right? There's total isolation from others. That's the kind of, that's the kind of human landscape. Um, and that's why the coming together of Daniel and Marion is so epical and so cataclysmic because it's a breaking of that barrier of not solitude, but loneliness. I, I think, Mike, you're you're right that that you know the difference between those two is actually is, is essential, and there's a tr tremendous difference between the, uh, being confined in a bubble without finding access to the world or to others, which is where we encounter, you know, many persons in the film, and which is epitomized by the suicide, you know, the guy who jumps, jumps off the top of the building, you know, which gives uh, Cassiel, tries to comfort him, but, but of course he, he doesn't quite manage that and is devastated when this man. His body uh, language there is so powerful, yeah. right? Yeah. More, more than the scream, the way he collapses, you know? Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, the, so the, the step from, um, you know, ordinary consciousness to that awakening is uh, is a um, not an easy one and it you, in some way you have to pass through death you have to pass through despair you have to pass through loneliness um, to get to the point um, you know at the end of the film I think Marion says um, yeah the togetherness with Damio is premised upon their each having their own solitude as well which is a quintessentially real key and theme yeah. right being mm -hmm. the guardian of one uh, one another's solitude and she which how she put it how, at, at last i would find someone i could be alone with yes uh great great leonard cohen lyrics in the song waiting for a miracle you know baby let's get married we've been alone too long <sighs> let's be alone together let's see if <laughs> we're strong um I, I think that album's from like 92 or something. It's actually from right around the time of uh, <clears throat> um, the, the film. Um, but so it, I have to say that sometimes Rilke can feel um, like there's too, there's too much of an emphasis on that, um, that, that aloneness even in company. Uh, I, I don't, I struggle to understand how that, um, that idea doesn't, um, how, how it can be squared with genuine communion between people and how it might, I, I struggle to see how it does not inevitably lead to exactly the sort of hyper-individualism, the atomization um of in, of individual consciousness that yeah wings of desire is certainly showing us that particularly in the the first part of the film and um the the question seems to be how how can you overcome that and and to me the the answer of well you'll be alone still but together is not is not adequate and i don't think that that's what i got from um 
from from the end of Wings of Desire either, because the way that they um, the the way the way that uh, Damiel and and Marianne um, are with each other at the end seems to be um, so the, the the film seems to be trying to show it to us in a way that is very focused on their their bodies and their places where they are um and what i i don't get much of a sense of their they're alone together um at at the end they they seem more more genuinely or, or thoroughly together than that um i mean maybe i just have not never been a sensitive enough reader of that kind of language that that you guys have pointed out but um i have to say i, th it's I, I think it's kind of there i think it's kind of there jonathan and tell me if you disagree michael or daniel um it's it's there kind of in in the trinitarian anthropology not to take it too far afield is that you know again i'm always going back to working with young people Right now, the loneliness epidemic, they want to hurl together themselves into kind of a, a uniform mass. You know, and I'm just like I said, loneliness and solitude, optimism and hope, the distinction between a community and a crowd is so profound, like universes apart. Yeah. So the, a language the students always feed back to me is, uh, and they see, talk about bodily gestures. They're coming in here and they're talking about a relationship they have. And what usually comes out of me is like two sparrows in a hurricane. Yuck, yuck, yuck. You know, that until you can be fundamentally your own person and in communion that uh, oneness so you know not the oneness of the womb but we go through this death as daniel makes clear and yeah. then this idea that we through a form of death we do find solitude and not paradoxically but it's a both and this is the whole trinitarian dealio you know that instead of going back to the womb as a goal of uh you mentioned the the translations you had you know, some of the Eastern religions kind of going back to a oceanic oneness, but this idea that the more, the more Jonathan becomes Jonathan, he finds a unity that is womb-like as well as your total personhood at the same time. You know, I think we're still getting there. If some of us believe in the evolution of consciousness, that's what Barfield would call final participation, mm -hmm. that a oneness restored at a higher level without reducing anything. But certainly in this culture, you know, with uh, after the industrial revolution, the emphasis is all towards this kind of homogeneous mass and working in church ministries, preparing people for marriage. I always want to tease people apart more and more. So, you know, hyperbole and Leon Bloy said is, you know, that that thing that draws us closer to insects, uh, distinguishes between insects and draws us closer to the stars. That we almost need some hyperbole here to do some really important work in culture. And it's kind of untangling people apart. Uh, left, you know, without some of this language that vendors is using at Rilke, I'm out of luck trying to get people to see the distinction between their their way out of loneliness is going to a Bills game and wearing <clears> the stuff, you know. Well, I think there, there's a key word at the end of the film that, yeah. that for me is is how it works. Erstaunen. He, Daniel's looking at Marianne and he says he's astounded by her. He's mm -hmm. in he wonders at her. That's a sense and of that, otherness, yeah. Well, uh, that she. I mean, is, I don't. Right? Yeah, otherness, I guess. But but it's more. It, it, the wonder isn't at that, isn't at the fact of the otherness, uh, mm -hmm. because he's become a human being now. 
she's no longer other to him in the way that she was when he first fell in love with her as an angel, when he was still an angel. And um, no, but he's just wondering at her as, as this woman. Mm -hmm. And I think you cannot have that feeling right. in a non-personal way, in an impersonal way. You, you only feel wonder before something that you actually engage with as personality, as person. So if you, if you feel wonder before the natural world, say, uh, it's because you actually experience the creation as, as person, not as right. matter, which is alien to you as a conscious being, as inert unconscious matter, you experience it as another kind of person. So mm -hmm. I think the, the, you know, may, maybe my objections to the language of aloneness is not, don't really stand up, but but in terms of how you get over that, how, how you try to actually describe, well, what is it like to be alone together? Um, I think one one way of explaining what that bond is, what the communion rests in, is this constant wonder. And certainly that could be Trinitarian, for sure. Um, but uh, in the film, that's the word. That's the word that has jumped out at me since I first heard it. You know, it reminds me of... Uh... I mean, I think maybe what the film is saying is the the answer to that anxiety, angst, and uh, despair that that haunts so much of the film, especially in the beginning, is you know finding a way to enter into a radical astonishment or a radical amazement as as a, 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 as the, as the pure authenticity of being human, right? And I always tell the story to students when they ask me for for a rubric <laughs> I, I hate that yeah my rubric is always astonish me right which is something Ali <laughs> Khan's friend Jean Cocteau right he heard from Serge Diaghilev right when he said when he wanted he hired Cocteau to design sets for the Rite of Spring he said well what do you want me to do astonish me <laughs> that's what I want you to do right and that and, but and and the film is really good at astonishing us at various points, right? We talked about the transition to color. Um, but there are many of those, or, or the part with Peter Falk, when we find out he's an angel and he, I, I feel you, I feel, I feel you. I know you're here since I got here, right? You And and and, and I think what's, what's interesting in the film is how it uses humor very often to, to bring us into that astonishment, to disarm us. Like when uh, when Marion is talking to Peter Falk and she's looking for, goes, are you looking for somebody? He goes, Lieutenant, can you help me find someone? <laughs> really? Well, do you know his name? No. Yeah. Do you know where he lives? No. Do you know what he looks like? Well, it's a tough case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many of those moments, even at the beginning, right? With when the the song of childhood starts, and. It's uh, it's very serious, very German, and then it said and didn't make faces when photo, being photographed, right? right? So there's there's a lightness that comes in to rescue us from that darkness, and for me, you know, the 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 absolute affirmation of the love between man and woman, which you know, talk about otherness, right? We you know I would. I would tell when I was a Waldorf teacher and the boys in around sixth grade would be really, they would try to tease the girls in the way that they tease other boys. And the girls would just break down. Are you me? And so I had to have a meeting with the boys. I said, all right, get this, boys. 
they are not like us. <laughs> they are not like us. And in fact, I was thinking yesterday about Teresius, right? Who was the only human who ever to have experienced both male and female psyche because he was actually biologically both male and female at different times. And that's an important thing here in this film is there's such a, it, in front, I mean, being married for now 30 years, 31 years, um, that affirmation of marriage, you know, that's amazing. Revelation. You could never, you could never hear this line in any language in modern film. Es gibt keine größere Geschichte als die von uns beiden, von Mann und Frau. There is no greater story than that of us two, the man and the woman. That's yeah. what John says in her Leviserklaring. And it's... Wait, wait, John, uh, the DEI representative is at the door right now. <laughs> <laughs> later, later. Well, it's so subversive. It's so subversive. It's crazy. She says that and, and it's... Um, just, I mean, when I, I, I was astonished even in 2003, it's, I mean, things were nowhere near like they are now, but um, it still felt archaic, an affirmation of something archaic and primordial even to hear that. And the instant response of that I had then, and still do anytime I see this thing, um, was that's completely true. I give my total assent to that statement. She's absolutely right. And and you're right. and it is a kind of wonder at it that that's the story that that like that's the the story. Um the mm -hmm. original story. Uh, so I mean yeah, it, it that is another part of how it works. I I don't I don't quite under I don't know how uh to map that onto the divine human or or mundane transcendent kind of uh spectrum uh or whatever you want to call it uh, that the the movie is working with um and it's even weirder in rilke i mean yeah the, I, I, i'm not going to try that there but there there does one does want there to be some kind of connection between those those two pairs man and woman and uh let's just say heaven and earth yeah um, well i think that's um i i could try it a, a few thoughts on, on that. Um, first, first of all, I, I think this harkens back to something you mentioned before, Jonathan, um, you know, about Rilke on uh, loneliness and your questions about that. Um, I mentioned before how the, the film and Rilke seem to come from somewhat different perspectives, not um, un unrelated, but but somewhat different in terms of the angel, human, transcendent, mundane uh, angle of things. I think the same is true with regard to love, the the relationship between a man and a, a woman, because much of the elegies and certainly much of Rilke's life um, is uh, characterized by a tremendous yearning for love and connection with the unknown beloved, the feminine other, but also a, prof a, a profound, um, yeah, um, and, um, put, putting off of, of of that, and a and a, a, a um, yeah, I mean, you know, he 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 he. Um, um, he he married Clara, 
but um, but then they they split, and you know he had many loves thereafter, but he could never maintain himself in a uh, married relationship or a, a singular relationship, and um, you find that in the elegies too, where the emphasis is on the possibility of being entangled in another in a way that reduces one. Right, you get lost in an in, in a mesh an enmeshment that somehow precludes transcendence um, for, for, for Rilke. Um, and at the same time, the yearning that's part of love is the very motor of transcendence for him. So it's a dialectic there. Um, and, I, and I think what's key is that um, um, when you talk about, you know, this being the story, you're talking about an archetypal level of uh, of reality, and I think that's what both the film and Rilke are are looking for. And the, and that's true with the man woman relationship. That the it's uh, the, the relationship between Damiel and and Marion uh, becomes so profound because somehow the film success uh, succeeds in in touching an archetypal level where it's not just Damiel and Marianne, it is somehow man and woman. It's actually masculine and feminine, the archetypal energies represented by those. And it is only, I mean, all the alchemical texts say, you know, that the path to the self, the divine and the human is the union of the, the king and the queen, right. the masculine and the... <clears throat> feminine in each individual as well as it being you know a product of of, of actual relationship but um that's what to me is so challenging about gender politics today is the loss of that any kind of connection to that transcendent level which is actually what provides numinosity or the connection to right. the divine i you gave know. you that quote one time michael that uh Father Ed Dillon, who we had on the podcast, when he studied over in Rome at the highest levels, his favorite professor had the line, no civilization has survived three generations of co-education, meaning once that polarity is gone, civilization falls apart. Yeah, but this came from a historical perspective that no civilization has survived three generations of co-education. When you, when you mash up the gender so much, what you get in the in the language Michael Martin uses a lot is the the confusion of the creative and the clever. You know, it's just a rearranging of the parts. The mm. creative is gone, and then civilizations start to crumble down and crumble down because there's nothing new. There's no huge fames. And I've mentioned too that the monastery we used to work, they're they're seeing a crisis and they're right. Trappist monks. But one of their heavy hitters now, not quite the Thomas Merton of our age, Michael Casey. He's an Australian Trappist monk. He's, he's had to posit out of a fight for survival that a Trappistine monastery must necessarily be located somewhere near a Trappist monastery. So there's some type of arcing because without that, you see the life, the life of the men shrivels up, shrivels up. These are realities that, you know, we're finding, I think, experimentally true. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I, you know, just yesterday or even this morning, I was watching a, a lecture from a couple of years ago with Camille Polly. I just happened to show up. <laughs> And she was talking about precisely this. She said, uh, you know, this idea of men and women interchanging and, you know, doing the same jobs, working side by side. It's an experiment. 
<laughs> this is still yeah. in the experimental stage. And mm -hmm. she talked about when she was a girl in, in New York, you know, in an Italian immigrant community where the, the, the worlds of men and women at the time were different worlds, right? And, and that, that we shouldn't uh, ignore that what's what we've been doing for the last few generations, last two or three generations, is an experiment that has never been tried before, right? So it's true. You know, I'd, I'd say we're up to about three generations. Lost. We're up to about what, Jonathan? We're at least up to about three generations now in terms yeah, of yeah. coeducation. <laughs> I mean, I, and it's hard for me to. I, yeah, I don't know. It, <laughs> for me born in 1982 to um well so here's an interesting <laughs> personal anecdote when i was uh 14 end of middle school eighth grade um i was miserable absolutely miserable in the in the school system that i was a part of which was a, a supposedly good uh, and it was good uh public school system and my best friend was next door to me and he his family was catholic i grew up with no no religious upbringing um and um my parents uh my, my friend was had been in public school with me up to that point um uh, because his parents couldn't afford to send their kids all through catholic school all the way through their whole educations but they thought the best time for it was in high school because we had this very prestigious jesuit high school there saint x saint Xavier's high school and um uh they thought if that's the time to do it you know if you can and so they were going to send my friend greg there um it was all boys and all the all the catholic schools in cincinnati at least back then were still um uh hadn't been integrated there were there were no co-ed ones that I, that i'm aware of um and um i now realize that's probably weird i mean this is the 90s i'm talking about i think by then a lot of them had been integrated but um Anyway, my friend was going to go and my parents said, well, do you want to go too?" you know, we're, we're like half Jewish and don't <laughs> have do anything with religion, but we'll send you to the Jesuit school. It's great. Academically, your best friend's going to go. And a huge part of me really wanted to do it um, because I thought, well, yeah, gosh, I mean, this looks great. I was a serious kid. I was a serious student. I wanted to be around other people who actually wanted to learn. And um, my best friend was going there and, and it's just everything about it seemed like why would I not do it you know I mean this this could be great and I wasn't particularly weirded out by the religion of it I, I in fact if anything it might have might have been a kind of a draw uh, because it was something I didn't have you know it was strange and mysterious and other to me and um, but eventually but I decided not to which ended my friendship with this guy um, because I wanted there, there's this, like this overwhelming animal impulse like no I want to be around the girls it's, it was clear as day to me then, and it's been clear ever since. Like, there was only really one reason I decided to stay in public school was I wanted to be around the girls. And, um, you know, it, it's not, it's impossible to genuinely regret the course of one's life. Uh, it's, it's kind of irrational to do that. But um, so I don't. And I've, I've had a very interesting youth uh, because of that decision, um, which in fact, led me up to the point where I could watch Wings of Desire for the first time at the age of about 21 uh, <laughs> in the particular emotional state I was in. Right, right, right. Uh, and I think I would have led a very, very different life if I had gone to the unisex Jesuit boys school. Um, but uh, 
that was, I mean, it just, it was so apparent to me that that difference between the schools was the difference. Mm -hmm. One was all boys and one was not, you know, all the academic stuff, all my distaste for the drugged out anti-intellectual culture of suburban American kids in the nineties, all that other stuff was way downstream from the primary difference between these schools, which was one is, one is co-ed and one is not. And so, I mean, that's, yeah, it, the, the consciousness of that um, difference it makes in one's entire relation to the world, consciousness of the, the cosmic masculine and feminine, how they instantiate and play out is just, uh, it's impossible to overstate how important that is. So why don't we yeah, and in view start of the... to wind, wind it down a little bit. Um, Sorry, huge anecdote. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's related. It, it is somehow responsible for how I ended up watching Wings of Desire as I did. So any last thoughts? Any last thoughts, Daniel? Yeah, well, just picking up on what Jonathan was saying is, is I think it's worth noting what a remarkable character Marion is. Mm -hmm. And because she really does carry the soul. I mean, she's a soul figure. She's an anima figure, a profoundly um, deep one. And that is, of course, why the angel Damiel, who's masculine, um, figured as masculine, is so drawn to her. There's that wonderful moment when she's alone in her trailer there. I don't know if he, he's there too, but he's not incarnated yet, so she, she doesn't know he's there, where she has that stone or, or does he pick up the stone? Picks up the stone. He picks up the stone, which is a symbol of the weight or gravity of earthly existence. Um, and she's wondering in astonishment about the simple, you know, the simplest uh, things, which, um, you know, I think of the, 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 the famous lines from Rilke's Ninth Elegy, um, you know, are we here perhaps are we are we perhaps here just for saying house, bridge, fountain, gate, jug, olive tree, window, but for saying remember, oh for saying that for such saying as never the things themselves hope so intensely to be. Not a great translation there, but this numinosity of you know earthly existence, which is carried by her which she carries in in a way in her being at the same time that she's a trapeze artist mm -hmm. and of course there's the wonderful fifth elegy where Rilke talks about the circus and it being the archetype of the the human who is trying to transcend trying to fly but she just says chicken wings mm -hmm. you know before she meets Daniel <laughs> she can't quite do that and is always in danger of falling but is nevertheless yearning for uh, you know, for that. So, yeah, there's this tremendous coming together talk about, uh, you know, Trinitarian anthropology or whatever of, you know, body, soul, and spirit that is uh, illustrated or exhibited, uh, unfolded in some way in, in the film. And I think that's why it is such a profoundly moving experience for so many persons, because there is a figuration of that in the images, in the in the story, of um, and what is more healing? What is more um, necessary? What is more central to our being than than finding some 
harmony of body, soul, and, and spirit, because that's that's the answer, you know, to the the human quest for meaning and the and the divine. And I think the film um and you know Rilke's whole oeuvre in a way is really addressing and speaking to that that uh, deep need in a very um profound profound way tell us about your books daniel <laughs> and then jonathan we're going to have you reintroduce your books well again um can I, I very briefly i want to tell the story that what michael we'd had correspondence about daniel and jonathan coming on i've i'd met jonathan and uh Daniel, to me, was some professor who wrote a book on Rilke. So I said, I better get up to snuff. And I remembered reading a, a book on Rilke some years ago after just being engrossed in the Sonnet Orpheus. And so I thought, I'm going to go back to that one. I had it on Kindle because I thought it was just amazing. And it happened to be Daniel's book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's this book. It's called uh, In the Image of Orpheus. It's great. It's great. A Soul History. This is, took about 20 years of my my life and it kind of goes through the whole of Rilke's life and work from a perspective of archetypal psychology deals with a lot of the things that we're talking about today. I have a couple others too. My first, uh, this this one's called Rue Rilke, which is my uh, story of my first Rilke pilgrimage when I went in not long after seeing the Wim Wenders. This is in 1993. I took a trip to, to France and Switzerland and uh, visited sites important to Rilke. Um, at the same time, I was involved in anti-death penalty work. So these are both um, with uh, Chiron publications. Um, so this is a kind of travelogue and uh, the, the account of my uh, Rilke pilgrimage. And then the one Michael uh, Martin helped me with um, is the son my translation to the sonnets Orpheus, which is out by, from Angelico Press and is a uh, one of the relatively few translations of the sonnets that strives to maintain the the meter and the the music and the rhyme of the yeah. of the sonnets while remaining faithful to Rilk, the Rilkean words. So let me say this. Uh, thank you, Daniel. Yeah. Here's something not many people know. So I never charged Angelico Press for editing that book. <laughs> wow. Because I felt I felt like it'd be a violation. <laughs> so John Reese and Jim Whatmore, <laughs> I never told you, but now I'm telling you because I know you're going to watch this because you have three Angelico authors here, and uh, I never charged you guys. Oh, well. <laughs> because I felt that's like an honor. I don't want to pollute Rilke with filthy lucre. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to. It was an honor to do that. Yeah, Jonathan, uh, repitch, uh, repitch your great novel. I've got a sure. I, well, I, but first, let's, just let me say that your your work sounds wonderful, Daniel. And um, I uh, I frequently teach with Relka, um, but I haven't read your translation of Sonnets to Orpheus, so I'm definitely going to check that out and and hopefully get a chance to teach with it because um, that sounds Where wonderful. Where are you teaching now? Um, I teach creative writing at Eastern Michigan University occasionally. I, I'm an adjunct. I, I don't. I sort of pick up classes when I yeah there um but uh uh yeah i teach creative writing so i'm trying to actually get people to, to write um not just i'm not teaching literature courses right. uh, but uh yeah i love to try and use some rilke when i do the usually the poetry parts but um 
uh, I haven't been thrilled with Roca translations. Stephen Mitchell, whose translation I read when we started the program, um, is the only one I've I've ever read of Rilke. And um, Mitchell was an interesting guy and a great guy. And uh, yeah. but uh, you know it, it's it's got its limitations. So anyway, I'm glad to Buddhist learn. Rilke. Hmm? We, get. we get Buddhist Rilke with Steve. Buddhist. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he very Zen and 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 into Taoism, which actually has of all the Eastern religions that I know of, the most um, uh, attention is paid to masculine and feminine ideas, uh, principles in it, um, and that comes out in all kinds of interesting ways. Um, and and in Stephen Mitchell's stuff too, but you're right, it's Buddhist Rilke. <laughs> um, right. So what did I write? I haven't written as much. Um, I do have a publication, a uh, uh, translation of Paul Claudel's Five Great Odes from Angelico, um, Claudel, which were written actually um, uh, not long at all before Rilke's poetry. Um, sort of early uh, modernist or even high high modernist. Um, period of time uh, in literary history uh, and and maybe you know really do have something in common with Rilke mm -hmm. um, I actually first discovered Rilke through reading his French poetry when I was an undergrad uh, but um, I also have a novel absolutely I do have a copy of that next to me you can see absolute it. music absolute music um, which is published by slant books um, and yeah in that novel um wings of desire features prominently at, at a significant moment in it um including some lines are quoted um and actually earlier i i had i read i had to use my novel to find <laughs> the line in wings of desire that i wanted to read about the the greatest story there um under and but so that's me uh for the moment it's been great. Definitely, time. I'll definitely look forward to 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 reading that novel. Great. Okay. So, uh, friends, thank you so much, uh, Michael. We'll all see you next week. Uh, Jonathan and Daniel, thanks so much. Uh, this crew could be brought again because uh, I, I learned so much, and uh, we'll do another one. We stayed kind of Rilke, Wings of Desire. I think we need a show in the future just on Rilke himself too. So, and uh, it would look forward to inviting you by. Uh, both back and we will see everybody next week on the regeneration